I wrote a second op-ed basically saying, we need to talk about COVID recoveries. I got sick on March 13th, it's April 13th and I'm still sick. I'm talking to all of these people who are also mostly young and otherwise healthy who are also not getting better. I think there's more to this story. I included a link to sign up for the little Instagram chat we had going thinking like maybe one or two people would sign up. And overnight, 2000 people signed up to join that group. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Fiona Lowenstein, a writer, producer, and the founder of Body Politic, a queer feminist wellness collective. After being hospitalized for COVID-19 in March of 2020, Fiona co-founded the Body Politic COVID-19 support group, which offers support and resources to thousands of people living with COVID-19 around the world. In April, she wrote what is believed to be the first account of long-haul COVID in the New York Times. She's been covering the patient experience and leading COVID patient advocacy efforts ever since. In this episode, Fiona shares her personal experience with long-haul COVID and how she created and fostered her community. Moderation in a support community is pretty unique. So Fiona and I chat through some of those intricacies and she shares some great tips. We also chat about how we can recenter the health and wellness conversation around the people and groups that have historically been left out and how we can all be better allies. So let's jump right into it. Fiona, welcome to Create Community. I am so excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we could finally make this happen. I know we connected a while back and I think life just kind of got in the way and things were crazy. But I first saw you on Netflix, which was so cool. You were in a really cool documentary all about COVID and you shared your experience and your story was really, really touching. And I'm really excited to get into that and, you know, the community that you've built and the experience that you've been through. But before we jump into any of that, I want to kind of take us back to your early days. And I want to learn a little bit about how you even became a community builder in the first place. I think we all have such a fascinating journey to it. And no one really seems to kind of know that they're getting into it and fall into it in very unique ways. So I'm really curious, what were you like uh, growing up? Like, what were you like in high school? What were some of your interests and extracurriculars? I'll start by saying, so I grew up in New York City and um, both of my parents were artists, self-employed artists. And like, honestly, probably, you know, it was this was like the 90s and the 2000s. So I would say early participants in the gig economy. It was not necessarily the gig economy back then, but, um, you know, doing things like substitute teaching and tutoring and whatnot. So I grew up in a family where beating to your own drum and like carving out your own individual path was very much valued and also a somewhat unconventional family where there was a lot of creativity encouraged. Um, And so in high school, I had a lot of different kind of interests and extracurriculars. I was I've been a history nerd for many, many years. Um, So, you know, I was on the debate team and did Model UN and, you know, wrote for the paper and was editor in chief of the school paper by senior year, I think. But I also was a musician. I played piano and guitar and I was a songwriter. Um, And I also did a lot of feminist blogging for I had my own website and for a couple of other websites. And I think my high school experience was somewhat unorthodox because I ended up going to two different high schools, um, a public school and a private school. And I 
I was always just doing a lot of extracurriculars outside of school. That's so fun. And wow, that's so interesting that you had that experience of going both to public and to private school. How did you feel about like finding your sense of belonging or your community within those two different environments? Was it a little bit easier in, in one of those or, or kind of the same across the board? Yeah, I mean, I think I was always someone who was sort of flitting between different communities and different friend groups and different environments. Um, and so when I switched from public school to private school, I still stayed like very close friends with most of my friends from public school. And those are still like my high school friends to this day. I definitely fit in and felt a little more comfortable at public school. I was on a scholarship at private school. And so I think there were some ways in which I was sort of unable to participate in the social culture there just as a result of coming from a slightly different like economic and class background from some of the other kids. I mean, New York City private schools can be really crazy. And like, but I think also like I was somewhat comfortable with the idea that I was flitting between different groups. And that was something that also allowed me a lot of freedom and I think made it easier for me to kind of say no to things that I didn't want to do in high school that sometimes you feel pressure to do because I always had kind of the excuse of, no, actually, I'm going to, you know, be doing some such and such with this other group of people. But I think the feeling of belonging is something that I have struggled with because while I am have been very self-sufficient for a long time and and feel, you know, I, I think I'm very individual in certain ways. I also recognize that community is incredibly important. I think that community is something that I lacked a little bit in my early life. And it's something that I have sought out more intentionally as I've grown older, especially as communities that I was a part of either in college or in high school, you know, have kind of fallen away, just realizing how can I replicate what I found to be so special or so empowering about that community that I was a part of, can I, you know, build it myself or can I create it myself? Whether it's something like what I built with body politic or whether it's just like thinking about new ways to get together with my friends. There's definitely sort of a theme there that, you know, people who grew up as an only child, there's almost that feeling that you have to create your own community or you're not really going to have one. Whereas a lot of the time, if you're sort of born into a big family or, or born into a community, that's sort of there from the get go. So what did you end up studying in post-secondary? I went to Yale. I graduated in 2016. And um, when I got there, I wasn't really sure what I would study. I was interested in, I think I was taking like a lot of history classes, some stuff in kind of the IR field, realized pretty quickly that like political science and international relations were not for me, especially at a school like Yale, where it sometimes feels like you're like literally being trained to join the CIA. Um, <laughs> and I started to very organically pursue journalism. I was a history major in college. Um, and I was the editor-in-chief of Yale's feminist publication. Um, but once again, I kind of pursued journalism in my own way. So, you know, I didn't write for the Yale Daily News, which was like the big publication that a lot of people wrote for. I ended up going this other route and going for a more kind of, you know, activism-driven publication. But I still took a lot of the same journalism classes and whatnot. And I had the opportunity in school to intern at Bustle and intern at the Columbia Journalism Review. Um, and I also took classes with um, Bob Woodward and a couple of other really incredible journalists and got to do some pretty cool investigative projects. How did you end up starting your community body politic? Is that, did that sort of like flow from how you started your career or like when did that happen and, and what inspired it? After I graduated college, I was working in book publishing. You know, I was enjoying it and, and I was I was getting to pursue some things that I was interested in, but I really missed that just total creative control and ability to, again, create community, right? Because a lot of times, you know, 
when you're working in book publishing, you're kind of working on your specific book with your boss or whoever else, um, but everyone's doing their separate projects and you're only getting together to talk about things once in a while. I'll also say that during that first year out of college, I had some pretty serious mental health crises. Um, you know, I was living in New York again, and um, I think that it was a bit of a shock to just realize, oh shit, like this is what I'm getting paid and this is what rent costs and all of that stuff. And I was working pretty hard and feeling pretty burnt out. And I started to turn to wellness, I guess, um, as a real outlet for the mental health struggles I was having. I'd always relied, I think, heavily on exercise to boost my mental health. Actually, when I switched to private school in high school, like one of the first things that I discovered was that they had this just absolute gorgeous gym that no one used and so I started like working out there every day after school and became really in tune with my body and noticed how much better I felt mentally and so I, I turned back to that I started taking different you know boutique fitness classes around the city experimenting with meditation um, just learning more about self-care going to therapy and in that process I discovered both that you know these were really vital tools for me um, especially with kind of that fast-paced city life but also that most of the ways in which these tools and offerings were offered was in spaces that often felt very exclusive. Um, and I would talk to my friends and say like, you know, do you want to come with me to this or do you want to come with me to that? And a lot of the time, the feedback I would receive from friends is like, I don't feel like I belong in that space. And I felt that even myself going to some like boutique fitness classes and wellness workshops that I was sort of misunderstood as someone that I wasn't. Um, you know, I'm I'm thin, um, I'm white, I'm blonde, um, and I'm I'm cis presenting. So a lot of people would just kind of, you know, I would show up to like an Upper East Side fitness class filled with kind of like you know skinny white mommies <laughs> and feel like okay, they just see me as one of them, but I don't actually buy into all of this. And there are things that the instructor is saying that are kind of like triggering in terms of, you know, body image issues, or they're making assumptions about my gender or my sexuality. And so I, I started just talking with friends about, you know, what what would wellness look like? Is there a type of wellness that we could work toward together that could actually be more inclusive? So I think it was in March 2018, I had a brunch at my house with, you know, just invited a bunch of different people I knew that I knew were interested in wellness who I'd had some of these conversations with and basically asked like the phrase that was going around in my head was queer feminist wellness. Um, I asked, you know, what what does that phrase mean to you? And it was really, really interesting hearing different people talk about the ex negative experiences they'd had um, participating in wellness offerings in New York City and also the positive experiences they'd had. And so that really inspired the idea to create this event series in which, you know, we would have donation-based events and people could participate in various wellness offerings in a really safe space. Um, but also the idea that we would be promoting a very non-prescriptive form of wellness. And I just felt like that was really important, that wellness should make you feel good about yourself, not bad about all the things that you're not currently doing. That's so awesome. And I love the way that you got it started by, you know, just having that brunch in your house and asking those around you and the people that you sort of wanted to be part of this community. What does this mean to you? What kind of things are you looking for? And that helped you start it. I think a lot of people really overthink when when they have an idea for a community and they almost get bogged down to it and never even end up starting it because it feels too overwhelming. But you did it in the perfect way. And I absolutely love what you've created. 
You mentioned that accessibility is a really big part of of those events and the formats that you were running. Um, And you mentioned that it was because they were donation-based. Was there anything else that kind of jumps to mind uh, that helped you really make those events and uh, that community really accessible to everyone? A couple of things. I think the the thing that we always led with was, if we're talking about a topic, so I'll give you an example. Um, We did a panel on size inclusivity in fitness. If we're talking about an issue like size inclusivity, the people on the panel and the and the voices that are centered really must be the voices of those who have been most impacted by fat phobia and size discrimination. And I think that that was something that we've tried to lead with in kind of every every format, right? If we're talking about sexuality and movement, we need to be listening to sex workers. Um, we need to be listening to people who have been working on this for a long time, but have not had their experiences or their work be acknowledged on a mainstream platform. And then I think also we realized as we were growing and as we were having more events that um, it was limiting to be having events only in New York City, right? Because it's it's a self-selecting population to some degree here. And I would sometimes get DMs from people who were like, I love the event that you had, you know, in February on self-love, but I live in, you know, California or I live in Oregon. Like, would you ever do something like that here? And, you know, we were always a small organization. We didn't have a lot of funding. So we knew that we couldn't just like set up chapters all over the country. Um, But we did realize that we had to create more of a digital and virtual presence for body politic. So in September, I think it was September 2018 or 2019, um, we launched a mini wellness publication on body politic called Body Type. The whole idea being that we kind of want to rethink the idea of body types to be just about like someone owning their own body and really knowing what is right for them and what type of thing they want and what type of person they want to interact with in their wellness journey. Um, And that was really great because that allowed us to connect with creators all over the country, but also all over the world. And our audience started to grow beyond New York City. It also allowed us to publish more kind of recaps of our events, to do Q&As with um, various practitioners we'd worked with. I want to jump into the next community that you started. In March of 2020, I think everybody's life flipped completely upside down. But for you, it was it was at a whole other level because you were hospitalized for COVID-19. Can you share a little bit about what that experience was like? How did this happen? And what was the most challenging part of it all? It all started on March 10th. I'll, <laughs> I'll just give you kind of the dramatic origin story. Um, My really good friend, Sabrina, who um, also worked with me on Body Politic, came over for dinner. You know, we were hearing of a couple cases of community spread in New York City, but nothing had locked down yet. She came over for one last in-person like meeting and conversation about Body Politic. And we cooked dinner together. We were like Skyping with different members of our team in other parts of the country. And then she just started to feel sick. Um, Like she got really pale. She said she didn't feel well. And we both kind of had this moment of like, this can't be COVID, right? Because I mean, it's so bizarre. At that point, it felt very surreal. It was just kind of a news headline. So she went home right away. And then um, on March 13th, just a couple days later, I started showing symptoms myself. So I was hospitalized for COVID um, pretty briefly, March 16th to 18th, I believe. I spent one night in the ER and one night in the hospital receiving supplemental oxygen. I was never placed on a ventilator. But it was totally bizarre. I mean, I was the first person that 
I think most of the people I know knew who had gotten COVID, especially because at that time it was really hard to access testing. I tried multiple times to get tested before I was hospitalized and, you know, was just told that I couldn't be tested unless I knew someone who themselves had a confirmed COVID test, which I did not because my friend Sabrina also was having the same trouble getting tested. Um, and so I was only tested because I was hospitalized. So the experience of being hospitalized and getting that positive test result, it kind of immediately made me an authority on this on this new virus, even just in a, the really minor way of having had the thing happen that everyone was afraid of having happen, which is getting COVID and having to be hospitalized for it. And in the, in the days after I was hospitalized, when I came home, I started to notice some new symptoms. So, you know, originally the issues that I had been dealing with were just fever and shortness of breath. But when I got home, I, I was trying to kind of get my room together and I opened a lavender essential oil and I realized I couldn't smell it at all. So um, I, I started to notice loss of sense of smell. I had sinus pain. I started to get basically cold and flu symptoms that I hadn't had earlier, runny nose, sore throat, and really bad GI issues as well. And the one saving grace through this whole thing was that I had this very close friend who was also experiencing a lot of the same symptoms. So Sabrina and I were texting each other very frequently, you know, saying, I'm experiencing this. Are you experiencing it? She sent me a Twitter thread from an actor who said they'd lost their sense of smell. This was, of course, before the CDC had listed any symptoms really beyond the respiratory symptoms. And it was also before the mainstream media was addressing any of the symptoms beyond the respiratory symptoms. So we realized just through talking to one another that there was a lot that people didn't understand about COVID and that there was also a lot that we were experiencing that wasn't being kind of covered in the mainstream news. So I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about my experience of being hospitalized just a couple days after I was discharged, um, just saying, you know, I'm young, I'm otherwise healthy. I was 26 when I got sick. And immediately I started being contacted by patients, COVID patients all over the world. They were emailing me and DMing me and they were just desperate for someone to talk to who understood their experience, but they also had very tangible questions like, how did you know to go to the hospital? What did they do for you there? You know, have you been given an inhaler? Did that help? And so it became clear that there was a community out there that needed support, peer support most of all, um, but that also was really eager to, you know, share their own experiences and get their, their own experiences out there to impact the mainstream media narrative. So we started just a group chat on Instagram with like, you know, 25 or so of these people that had reached out to me individually. And then something started to happen, which was that time was going by. It was like, you know, two weeks since I had first gotten sick, three weeks since I had first gotten sick. And I wasn't getting any better. And I was noticing new symptoms cropping up that, again, were weird symptoms I hadn't heard of before, which we now know are associated with COVID, but we didn't know at the time. And there were a lot of other people in this little chat on Instagram that were saying the exact same thing. And in fact, many of them had been less sick than I was originally, like they had not been hospitalized, but they were seriously not getting better. You know, people who were saying like, I only had a fever of 100 degrees, but I've had it for three weeks. So that just seemed off to me. And I hadn't heard anything about that in the mainstream media. So I wrote a second op-ed basically saying we need to talk about COVID recoveries. I got sick on March 13th. It's April 13th and I'm still sick. I'm talking to all of these people who are also mostly young and otherwise healthy who are also not getting better. I think there's more to this story. I included a link to sign up for the little Instagram chat we had going, thinking like maybe one or two people would sign up. And overnight, 2,000 people signed up to join that group. 
So we quickly realized we we had exceeded the Instagram, you know, chat limitations. Then we moved to WhatsApp. We exceeded those. We ended up going to Slack, which is where we are now. Um, and the thing that people kept saying when they joined the group was like, I had no idea there was anyone else in this situation. And I will say that I still sometimes see messages that say that even today, even now that long COVID and long-term symptoms of COVID are more well-known, I still see people who join the community and are like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm breathing fresh air for the first time because I didn't know there was anyone else like me out there. It must have been so isolating, especially when you were going through it at the very beginning of this thing, you know, just like being that first person in in your group of friends or in your acquaintances who had it and to have that kind of experience where it took you a really long time to recover. Even now, I think to this day, like a lot of my friends, myself personally, I really I know maybe like a handful of people who've been sick with COVID, which is crazy that, you know, we're over a year into this thing and and still it could feel so isolating. So what was your recovery like? Like, when did you start to feel like yourself or have you reached that point yet? I usually say that, you know, my my kind of long COVID symptoms lasted from March 13th when I got sick through early June. I started to feel more like myself in June. I was able to start exercising again at, at you know, more or less the level I had been exercising at before. I also resumed full-time work in late June. Um, and for a long time, I would, I used to say like, oh, I totally recovered. I have realized now that I, I did, I think, make a full recovery, but I'm not the same person that I was before I got sick. And that's certainly the case, like emotionally, financially, um, but it's also the case physically. So I now experience really debilitating menstrual periods, which is something that I never had in the past. Um, it, it almost feels like a mini COVID. And this is actually something that's fairly seems to be fairly common amongst people who menstruate who've had COVID long COVID symptoms. So I've mostly recovered, but I'm definitely not. I think it's important to note that recovery does not necessarily mean I am exactly the same person as I was before. So you mentioned that the group, um, it grew to a Slack group. How else did it grow and evolve? And like, how did you keep like fostering connection within that group? The group now has about 10,000 members. There are a lot of COVID support groups out there now, which is great. I think, you know, the more groups that are out there, the more people will get support. But our group is still, to my knowledge, the only one that is completely private and only open to patients and caregivers. And that was something that was really important to us from the start was making sure that it was a safe space where, you know, people knew that there were not reporters lurking and trying to see what was going on, or even just curious, well-meaning individuals who don't have COVID, which you see sometimes in some of the, the Facebook support groups. Um, but we we started the group, you know, for the sole purpose of people offering peer advice and emotional support. And that is still, I would say, the the core purpose of the group and one of the key tenets. But it's grown into so much more. I Now Body Politic is a leader in the emerging COVID patient advocacy movement. And we went to Slack because we could have different channels on there to discuss different symptoms and things like that. Well, we still have channels on you know every system of the body where people can discuss different symptoms, but we also have channels on financial and legal issues where we sometimes have lawyers come in and do workshops on you know, how to apply for disability benefits and things like that. We have channels on medical advocacy um, where people exchange advice on how to navigate healthcare systems um, and often very specific advice for BIPOC or LGBTQ plus people or people with you know, prior histories of mental health issues, people who are more likely 
to, you know, experience discrimination in healthcare systems. And then there are also a lot of little initiatives that have grown out of the group. So, you know, there is a UK-based advocacy group now called Long COVID SOS, which formed in our support group. There is a patient-led research team called the Patient-Led Research Collective, um, which was started by a couple of folks who are still involved with body politics administrative team. Um, and it was started all by patients in our support group who basically said, hey, we're people with backgrounds in research and survey design and science and technology, and we want actual data on what's going on. Can we start surveying people? And their work has been recognized by the NIH, and they're working with various academic institutions and medical institutions around the world. Um, and they're really informing a lot of the latest knowledge on long COVID, which is pretty cool. There was a reporter who said to me that the group kind of seemed like a small city. And I think that is true. It's, it's in many ways kind of a choose your own adventure experience. You get in there and whatever you need to feel empowered and to and to really heal emotionally, I, I think is there for you. So do you have any advice or any tips for how like we can all work together to try to recenter that conversation, like the health and wellness conversation around the people and groups that have been historically left out? What could like the everyday person do to help? I think right now, internalized and societal ableism is being interrogated more deeply than it perhaps ever has been before. But I also think there are a lot of people who continue to sort of ignore that conversation. And I feel that I was ignorant to a lot of issues that exist in disability communities and chronically ill communities um, prior to getting COVID myself. And I think it's in retrospect, looking back on it, it's terrible that, you know, I was studying social movements in college and the histories of activism and, and all of that stuff. And I didn't have a really deep grasp on, on this really important um, activist movement of disability justice. So I think that the first step is self-education. I think that's often the first step. And so we often talk about, you know, how people can become a COVID patient ally. And we say, you know, educate yourself. We have a list of resources on our website and articles that we recommend about the COVID patient experience. If you don't know that there are COVID patients who are never able to test positive for the virus and get denied medical care as a result, or if you don't know that there are COVID patients who stay ill for more than two to four weeks, or if you don't know that COVID patients are losing their jobs because they can't secure disability benefits because the system is broken, then you know, you're know you not going to be advocating for the things that you need to be. And you also are potentially going to be saying things or doing things that are exclusive toward those groups. So even in my own life, I've I've done a lot of, you know, awareness raising with my own family and friends. And there were definitely times that there were people who were a little surprised at what I was saying or didn't quite believe it, or even situations in which I had to kind of remind someone in my community, hey, not everyone actually has the option right now to do X, Y, Z. And I also think and this is a really hard one. Like I have pandemic fatigue as well. Um, I'm so sick of my apartment yeah. <laughs> um, and I want to leave and I want to get back out there too. Increasingly, I am starting to fear that like the hopefulness and the optimism and, and really just the desire to get out of this situation may make us sometimes move too quickly. And I think when it comes to the pandemic ending or resolving, which of course we all hope is happening soon, I want everyone to be really mindful of the fact that there are people who will feel the ramifications of this pandemic for decades to come. And some of those people are certainly long COVID patients whose lives have been permanently altered. Many of them have received, you know, additional diagnoses of other chronic illnesses or disabilities. And then there are also the people who, you know, are trying to recover financially or emotionally. It's so important that you bring that up, the, that awareness and the education, because 
we all have to work at being better COVID patient allies, but just like the wider conversation around like being better able to support those around us, even if we can't fully relate to their situation. I think the work that you're doing and the the writing and the features that you're doing are is really opening people's eyes around that. So you mentioned COVID fatigue and pandemic fatigue and just, you know, being really tired of being in your apartment. I think a lot of people are feeling that. I'm sure a lot of listeners are feeling that way as well. Is there anything that you found helpful for your own mental health during this time? So when I was sick, and I'll just throw this out there in case there's anyone listening who is dealing with COVID themselves. When I was sick, and I think this applies most to COVID, I came back to again and again, this mantra of one day at a time. Sometimes I would even change it to one hour at a time because the fear and anxiety about the future when you have a novel, potentially deadly illness that you're seeing on the news all the time is very real. And you kind of can't even let yourself think about future scenarios, or I couldn't. So that was something that really helped me, you know, at that point in time, since feeling a bit better and being able to engage a bit more in some of the activities that I think a lot of people were engaging with during quarantine while I was, you know, too sick to be baking banana bread or whatever it is. I have dealt with depression and anxiety a lot in the past 11 months, and there have been some really dark and difficult times. And so, um, you know, I I can say what works for me, but I also definitely don't want anyone listening to think that, you know, I am immune to these issues or that I have it all figured out because I don't. And in fact, I think the most helpful thing that has come out of this has been realizing that my self-care practices can and will and perhaps should shift and transform over time. And it's not a failure to be really into meditation for three months and then realize that it's not working for you and try something else. It's not a failure to, you know, journal religiously for a little while and then be like, "Mm, this isn't really appealing anymore. Um, And I think too often that kind of prescriptive wellness world makes you think that if you're not, you know, waking up at the same time every morning and drinking the same celery juice and doing the same three breathing exercises for a full year, then you're not like actually legit at self-care. So the things that are working for me right now, um, I was previously not a morning person at all, but my seasonal depression got really bad. Even as early as like October, I started to feel really bummed out. Um, And so I've been waking up much earlier than I usually do around 7 a.m. and just taking some time by myself while my partner is still asleep near the like one really well lit window in my apartment. And I just meditate sometimes. I usually drink a glass of lemon water. Um, I often read or listen to an audiobook, but a lot of times I also just stare out the window and that like light first thing in the morning and that feeling that I'm interacting in some way with the outside world, even if it's through a pane of glass, um, has really, really been helpful the past few months. And I also am meditating right now. Um, I'm relying a lot on my telehealth appointments with my therapist. I am continuing to exercise six times a week, even if it's just something small, because I've noticed that it has a big impact on my mood when I can't. Um, And my resolution, if I had one for 2021, has been to try and put life over work a bit more, which is very hard because it feels like there is no life right now in some ways. But just to reach out to friends more, to be a little bit more proactive about scheduling things in my calendar that are not work-related. Those are such great tips. I'm sure a lot of people can use them. And also, I think like such a key thing is just like trying not to compare yourself to others. 
in some ways, it's almost like it might feel easier because, you know, social media, maybe people aren't posting as much and, you know, there, there's not as many like travel pictures and things like that. But everybody's situation is so different right now. And I remember at the beginning, I was having a really hard time with the depression and anxiety around the whole situation as well. And some people were thriving through it at the beginning, you know, just people who were in like a job that they could do at home and, you know, they're baking banana bread and exercising and and doing all the stuff it's it could be really isolating to see somebody's experience looking so different from your own so something that i found really helpful was just sort of like a social media detox and just unplugging when i needed to take that time away yes totally big fan of setting boundaries with like screens in general and that's the thing too like sometimes i love like going on instagram and seeing what various celebrities are doing in quarantine because it's like hilarious and interesting. Other times I do that and I'm like, I hate you. Why do you have a private gym? You know? So I wanted to ask you about moderation within your community. It sounds like everybody is really like joining with really great intent and, you know, they're in there just to connect with others who are going through similar experiences. But how do you just like make sure that people are joining for the right reasons? How do you filter them through uh, your intake form? And then what does moderation look like within there? Do you feel like you have to step in as a moderator or is it pretty much like kind of self-run? As I mentioned, we do have an intake form, which is a bit different from some of the other support groups. It's very simple. We ask for a name, an email address, and the reason you want to join the group. And you don't even have to give your real name if you don't want. In terms of how we moderate, so there are a couple things. After you join the group, you get sent an onboarding guide, which has some information on how to use Slack, but it also has a list of guidelines and norms for existing in the group. And this includes stuff like making it a judgment-free zone, not making assumptions about certain identity factors um, and definitely not placing blame on people for any aspect of their identity, right? So avoiding, you know, fat phobia, avoiding obviously racist assumptions. And we have one user in the group who said a few months ago that she likes the group because it's one of the few support groups that really acknowledges all the isms. And I think that that is like a very key tenet of our support group is People are there because they have long COVID or they have COVID in general, but that doesn't erase all of the other aspects of their identity. And we're all going to experience this virus differently and be treated differently by people in our lives based on who we are. We also have um, a guideline that I think is probably our most important guideline, which is always to contextualize information that you're sharing. And another good one is never to offer unsolicited advice. So Misinformation is, I think, an issue that we're all pretty concerned with right now, just in general. I mean, we've seen how there have been some really racist and xenophobic conspiracy theories about COVID. I mean, we're seeing the impacts of that right now. There's been a spike in anti-Asian racism. But I think we're also cognizant of the fact that COVID information is developing and our knowledge of the illness is evolving. So um, it's it, you can't just say no fake news, right? Because everyone defines fake news differently. You also can't just say link to a reputable site because everyone defines a reputable site differently. So what we ask instead is that people contextualize information. So it's the difference between saying like, this drug is great, it solves all of my COVID problems and you should take it too, versus saying, hey, my doctor prescribed me this drug. I found that it helped with X, Y, and Z. I'm not a medical professional, but if anyone is curious, maybe ask your doctor about it yourself. And that has been very helpful. And it's been a really, really good guideline for kind of addressing when, you know, occasionally something will come up in the group 
that seems a little bit suspect. But we also have an incredible team of mostly volunteer moderators and administrators who were, for the most part, all patients in the support group. That's one of the most important things that you could do as a community leader is just thoroughly listen to the people in your community and especially like really try to elevate those people who are really active and who are really helping you shape that culture. That's really cool. It sounds really thoughtful the way that you're doing it. So I want to spend the last few minutes of our interview just diving into your personal community. I think it's so fascinating how people who have built like massive communities navigate their personal communities outside of work or the community that they've built. So are there any other communities that you're part of and why are they meaningful to you? Currently, there are a few communities I'm a part of. Um, I'm a part of the lounge, which is like an online kind of it's I wouldn't say co-working group. It's more of honestly like a self-care group, but it was launched by um, Alicia Ramos, who used to run uh, the Girls Night In newsletter. And I highly recommend it if there's anyone out there who is feeling like they need to, you know, attend some Zoom meetings that are totally not about work and only about prioritizing yourself. I don't know anyone personally who's in the lounge with me, which is cool as well. Um, Or maybe I know like one or two people. So I'm making new friends in there, which is fun. I'm also a member of a couple different um, freelancer communities and communities for independent journalists. Um, And I'm in the process of actually helping uh, launch one myself with CUNY's journalism school. Um, So that's been really rewarding as well. And then there are a lot of like you know, less formal communities that I'm a part of. So before the pandemic, I was a part of um, this community at this local fitness studio, Shakti Bar. But then I think also, you know, my my high school friends and I have been keeping in really close touch during the pandemic. We text a lot. We get together for yoga every Wednesday. Um, My college friends and I have been doing some Zooms here and there. And so I think that that's been really nice as well. Unfortunately, though, like I do have to say that I don't think that I'm truly winning in the communities department right now, like the Slack community and the body politic community are really important to me. And I get a lot out of those as well. Um, But I also am definitely spending a little little too much time alone. I'm very glad that I know this about myself. Um, You know, when I got sick in March, I, I don't know that I would have said at that time, yeah, community is the one thing that I need all the time that will get me through. And now I really feel that way also because I have between the the body politics support group and the people, the COVID patients I've met on social media and patients and people from other disability and chronic illness communities, I have so many new friends. For sure. I mean, to me, it does sound like you're winning. It sounds like you're really like you are creating that community of people around you and you're connecting with people that kind of speak to your soul right now in this part of your life that you're in. You mentioned that you're still really close with your high school friends and, you know, other people in your life. How do you choose your people? Like, are there do you feel like there are certain qualities that you look for? or Do you feel like those really close relationships um, happen more organically for you? I think I'm becoming a little bit more intentional with this and and learning with time. And I think one thing that's become clear to me is that it's really important for me to have friends who respect my boundaries and vice versa and who do so, you know, kind of always assuming good intentions. Right. So like, you know, one of my closest friends from college lives in another state now and we often we'll go like an entire month without texting and sometimes we'll even like ignore the other person's texts. But we have such strong faith in each other as friends and we know so much that like the other person is there for us that I think at least for me, I recognize that as like, okay, she's got stuff going on in her life right now. Like this is a boundary. I'm going to wait until, you know, she's available for me and vice versa. I think I often appear to be a very outgoing person, an extroverted person. Um, 
But the truth is that I'm actually really private with like stuff that's truly important to me um, and have a hard time sometimes being vulnerable and emotionally intimate with friends. So I think I've also realized that um, it's important for me to have friendships in which people understand that I might be a little slower to open up and aren't frustrated about that. And also know that, you know, my slowness to open up or my inability to become immediately super intimate and vulnerable doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not human or that I don't have feelings of my own. And that's something that I think has become more complicated in the past 10 months or so just launching this community and becoming, you know, in some ways sort of a face for this movement of long COVID advocacy. I have a lot of people that are depending on me and I feel very privileged to be in this position to be able to amplify people's stories and answer people's questions on social media and, you know, emails from my, you know, my neighbor asking, hey, I'm getting my COVID shot. Like, you know, should I do this or that, right? Everyone kind of has a COVID question. But the new friends that I've made in the past 10 months, who I think have really stuck with me and and who I'm forming closer relationships with are people who see me as human and understand that I am also someone going through my own stuff in addition to being kind of, you know, a resource for others. It's come up a lot as a theme in this podcast with all kinds of different guests who are leading all kinds of different communities, is that a lot of the time when you're a very like public person with your community, a lot of people are very surprised to learn that actually in your day-to-day life, you're actually pretty introverted and you sort of like you need that time to recharge. So you're definitely not the only one and it's not surprising. So my last question for you is, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? Well, I think I understand it really differently now. I think it means walking into a space and feeling like you belong. And that doesn't have to literally mean walking into a space, right? Most of us are like in bed logging onto a space. And that can happen from, and this is what I used to think about with Body Politic back when we would run events, that can be the case just by playing music. That's the type of music that people who are attending the event like to listen to, right? or having you know people at the event who are greeting you who look like you. And I think in the COVID support group, it's um, come to mean, you know, emotional, providing emotional support, not in terms of like showering people in advice, but just listening. Um, and so I think that community, it's that sense of belonging and that sense of belonging often comes from a very active and supportive listening from others in that same group. I love that definition. That is so wonderful. Awesome, Fiona. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I learned so much from our conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. This was very fun. And it's nice to talk about something slightly outside of COVID sometimes. (laughs) Absolutely. I had such a great time chatting with Fiona, and I hope you learned as much as I did from this episode. You can connect with Fiona at fionalowenstein.com. And you can learn more about Body Politic and the COVID-19 support group at wearebodypolitic.com slash COVID-19. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. 
A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.